There are 574 tribal nations represented across the United States. They each have their own cultural richness, way of living, and customs. They also have health disparities and trouble with the acquisition of resources. Tribal Health, the podcast, wants to shed light on them and bring solutions available to improve access for tribal and indigenous communities. And now your hosts, Melody Lewis, Mario Trujillo, and Morgan Haynes. I'm so happy that you are a guest on the podcast and can't wait to share with the world your story and your experience because I know it's going to be very impactful. So thank you for being a guest today. You're welcome. Hi, everyone. Skuktosh, uh, which means good day in our language. Always a good day and a big blessing to wake up and smell the air. And even though we're in hot Arizona, um, you still have a goodness of the coolness and the desert breeze that flows at you. So my name is Monica Antone, and I'm the current lieutenant governor for the Gila River Indian community, which is a very unique community because uh, we're comprised of two tribes, um, the Akimar Atum, which is Pima, and the, the Pipash Maricopa. So we have two tribes. Uh, currently, we serve about 22,980 tribal members, and uh, we have a huge population and about 8,000 live out of state or in the Phoenix metropolitan area, which we do have an urban member association that has formed within our city of Phoenix. And they actually meet at Native Connections on the last Saturday of the month to get updates from the community because they're just as important to us, even though they live off the community. You know, they, they all have their stories of what they, they go through and many items. Matter of fact, my background before becoming um, a lieutenant governor is I worked as a medical assistant for Phoenix Indian Medical Center. And actually, it was the PIMC employees that formed the Urban Member Association because we wanted to have an active role of being in the know of what the community does, our community, Hilla River, as it grows, as it expands. And this was way before gaming came into the picture. So just building up and leading up what our people have been through as every other um, Native tribe has been through the trauma, you know, the genocide and the assimilation of our allotment acts out here on the community. And you can see that, you know, throughout every Native community, they all probably have the same story. But our story um, here on the community kind of starts with our first chief, our last chief, which was Antonio Lazul. And um, he was one of the first autumn warriors back then. Um, he preserved our land here and he elevated our people during his time and era. And he was known to be a, a military strategist. And he formed with the Peeposh at that time and also formed when Arizona first became a U.S. territory. We were starting to have quite a bit of invasion um, going through but it was our tribe that stood with the Arizona uh, Calvary uh, to help fight um, what was going on, what, what the battles mm -hmm. that we were having back then, and just trying to uh, make, you know, make known of what our community is today and how we built it. And just thinking back about resiliency, 
that we've had back then, it started somewhere. But our people, are we're known as the river people, and we're known as industrial. We, we do a lot of mechanics with our canals, and our people back from Ancestor are very industrious, and we're known as farmers. Um, we have a wide land base on our community, uh, which um, holds all the way from Coolidge, Arizona, all the way to, I don't know if you know where Phoenix Raceway is, PIR, all the way to Tolleson. We have seven districts. So if you can just imagine, we branch between Maricopa County and Pinal County. Our land base is huge. And so we oversee seven districts, you know, and the populations are growing. So throughout our land base is agriculture. We have farming. We're known for uh, farming squash, and corn, cotton. The three sisters is what we call it, which is what feeds us, our beans. Uh, we have temporary beans and our traditional beans that is way different than normal pinto beans. And we're known for making uh, chumat on a hot grill, the biggest chumat you have with a lot of butter on it. And I'll make you hungry on this podcast. <laughs> I'm just there. sharing with you our culture. Our culture is so uh, rich here. And that is what we have. That That is who we are and what, what we have, you know, come from our ancestors all the way to where we're at now. So that's yeah. a little bit of history. I love that. You know what I've, so fun fact about me is that I used to work at Gila River Indian Community at their employment and training department. And employment and training is just in charge of all of the workforce initiatives that, you know, serve the community. And they had shared with me two two funny thoughts I have is one, I never gained so much weight in my life uh, working at employment training because <laughs> of the chumath one, which is, you know, tortillas. Uh, but the food makers and the food, they would come in like every day selling their goodies and breakfast burritos and snacks. I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. And then lunchtime would come and like, oh, they're selling cupcakes. Yeah, I'll take some. <laughs> All day long, I would get snacks. But um and then the other part to this was my very first day, they did kind of like a tour of the community. And they said, okay, we're going to take you on a tour of the community and, and we're just block out your entire day. And I was like, entire day? But it goes back to how large uh, the lands uh, and their communities are from District 1 and District 7. We went, it was like hundreds of miles. <laughs> and it literally <laughs> took us the whole day to go from District 1 to District 7. But yeah, it was really awesome to learn more about the community. But we wanted to, for those of you, again, that don't know, Gila River Indian community, it's located outside of the Phoenix metropolitan area. So, you know, you heard say Pinal County, it's Maricopa County. So it's very large. I know one of the initiatives that we worked a lot on was how to increase the Indigenous representation into areas that are your major industries, we call it career pathways programming, right? So it was the hospitality and gaming. And one of the cool things was that you guys had your own healthcare system, extensive one. You wanna talk a little bit about, you know, healthcare in your community and what that looks like? Sure. Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking that. You know, I started here, like I stated, Phoenix Indian Medical Center, and I was in school and my community has been very blessed to give our tribal member scholarship for school. But there came a time where I was asked by, at Phoenix, and I was working there, you know, I've been, had service time there as a federal employee, but our tribe came to us and 
uh, gave us like a, you know, it wouldn't be like an ultimatum, but just said, hey, we're paying for your scholarship. We want to know if you'd be interested in coming back to work for the tribe. And it was under the late first female governor, um, the late Mary Thomas. And she was our first female governor. And her and the lieutenant at the time wanted to vest in our scholarship. So they came to PIMC, met in the basement down there. All They rounded us all up and said, you're in school. We want to know if you would mind interning and coming back to work for the tribe. And so... Some of us, you know, thought about it, vested our time. Some of us thought, well, wow, we would take a pay cut. I was one of those that chose to come back. So we had to viably learn about education, about where we would go, where we would fit in. I had to, I was either going to go to law enforcement or into public policy. Well, we went in for applications through student services, and I was given the opportunity to go into the right into the executive wing of our governor and lieutenant and I was competing you know with other interns that were in school we were ready to graduate I received I think a, at that time was close to graduating with an associates in business operation mm-hmm. never did I think I would be in public policy or you know nevertheless I come here I made I miss um, Thomas uh, they interviewed and I was told as an intern that I would have to shadow a governor. So nobody ever gets a, that wow. type of cut break, but that's how I started working. That that was 20-something years ago, 1997. During that same time I'm working at Phoenix Indian Medical Center, we started the six, we started to do what we call 638 with our Gila River Healthcare. So I came at a time where it followed me out to understand where the tribe was starting to break away from the federal government with medical Hill River Healthcare Services. Mm-hmm. And I remember because at, at the Phoenix Indian Medical Center, we had unions and the tribe was sovereign and said, we don't want any unions on the tribe. In other words, we're going to 638, we're going to take over our tribal social service, we're going to take over our police department, we're going to take over our hospital And like I said, resilient. They started strategically saying we're going to break away from the federal government. Mm -hmm. So when I came, ironically, I was uh, subject to listen to the meetings of the breakaway to what I seen formed as our Hill River Healthcare. I I came at a time at that where the breakaway was starting to happen and we were all getting, you know, forming our, you know, our first lay of people that would take over our Hill River healthcare. And it opened up sovereignty to clinics. It opened up sovereignty to how we would spend our money, where that money would be. And what I saw back then was the healthcare needs went into diabetes because we're a high population and known Hiller Pimas are known to have the highest rate of diabetics. But not only that, when I came on, at that time, Mary was advocating for juvenile diabetes, meaning it was starting at an earlier age. So anyway, with that being said, all of that came into play under her leadership. And I watched that unfold to every year, the Hill River Healthcare would build another system and another system. And right now, we have our Kamaki on the West End that serves our West End. Remember I said we have seven districts. It mm-hmm. serves quite a bit. And then we just opened our Red Tail Hawk, which is a beautiful on Queen Creek and I-10. It's brand new, beautiful. It's been open. It was open right before COVID. 
And when COVID came, we had to shut it down because of there was just a map. We had to keep centered with reacting to COVID and testing and the outbreaks that happened. But Red Tail Hawk became our hospital. We had deployed ventilators there. If the hospital beds were there, we were ready to take on the next step of COVID had that happened. So under Anthony Santiago and his team, Dr. Santiago, keeping up with the trends with the CDC and what we were all faced with through this global pandemic, that third facility became almost a unit of just COVID, just servicing COVID because the beds in the Metropolitan Valley were just, it, it was enormous where a lot of our tribal members, you know, of course, like anywhere else, we passed away. We had over 100 passed from COVID and then some. So with that population, it, it was like, uh, you know, it was so unbearable. But the point I'm making, going back in history of watching us form and have our own healthcare system, we have, you know, our sovereignty decision making that is uh, comprised of our own tribal members that run the board and can tell us what our needs are versus the federal government's telling us, this is what you're going to get, this is what you'll spend it on. We have to go with the times here. Oh, I just have a quick question with that. As you talked about, I mean, of course, your community and the resilience and strength that has been there since, I mean, the beginning, and now 638 healthcare system. Did you see a difference between, I mean, public healthcare and maybe federal healthcare, the way that it it was handled in your community and your tribe during COVID for, I don't know if I'm making sense, maybe the resilience and strength of the community. Did you see how it affected your tribe differently? As far as the medical part of healthcare or? Yeah, I, I guess all things, since it is all connected now with the general support and comfort of the community members during, I mean, the scary season of a pandemic or uh, the healthcare system and what is available to the community during COVID. I guess in general, like, did you see an overall strength because of that? You know, the, what was uh, crazy throughout the pandemic, um, we, I came into office right before I was on the council. We were already making decisions to gear up and get ready, We not knowing. But I think it was the, the debts that were hitting us left and right. And we came into office January 1st of 2020. We were sworn in. And just in one month, we had 31 oh. away. Can you imagine there's 31 oh, days in January? 31 days in January. So that means we lost a tribal member every day. So we buckled down and we had to stop, you know, of course, like every, every, it just seemed like what I saw was like, like you have this map and all the, the cities and counts, you'll have a green light and a red light. And all I saw was everybody stop, like the whole world just boom, boom, boom. Everybody shut down, including the food. But the way the healthcare came in is, the resiliency of our public, um, the nurses, the public health nurses that go out to the elders. Every, that was the first thing, the front line, establishing that front line one-on-one to make sure those on dialysis and those that were wheelchair bound, first and foremost was elders. Take the vulnerable population and let's get that prioritized. But the, what I saw was unity, like 
There wasn't any time to fight and bicker about who was doing right and who was doing wrong. We all had to lock elbows and gain some sense that we're going to have to get this fight together and we're going to have to work together and start prioritizing how we're going to be able to adapt, even to the part of our casinos. The casinos are, we have three properties, our Wild Horse Pass, our V Quiva on the West End and the Lone Butte, all along the I-10 corridor. That's our bread, our butter. As they say, that's our economic engine. And the day that we had to, as a council, shut that down, there was just the, the emotions of tears about everybody because it just seemed like the heart of the community just shut down. It's mm-hmm. almost like a factory. Everything just went down one by one. But what I saw and what I loved about the unity was our casinos, because remember during that time, there was food shortage, there was toilet paper shortage, everybody was scrambling for food and and even water and all this and that. Well, we had to buckle down and the casino took all the, the foods off the shelf and started distributing food out to all the districts. Can you imagine wow. working from the casino coming together and showing up with food trucks and delivering food, milk, just the basics to our elders and the families and the little kids. And we were all out there delivering food, us as council, as elected officials. And just to see our little children running outside with little pampers. And they didn't know because, you know, these are little (laughs) kids. They don't realize we see it out at the forefront. But the little kids were still laughing. And that's what brings up you know, any communities when you see the children still laughing and smiling throughout all the chaos. That's the beauty of it. But to see your your kids in the desert running around like nothing's going on, but yet they're hungry and starving. Hey, you know, they don't really know what's going on. And here we are delivering these food packages. And then the parents being grateful and elders coming together, looking on their shelves, putting food boxes off their own shelves, even elders knew they weren't going to eat this, but they knew a family that really couldn't make it to the store, had no transportation, let alone no food on the shelves. But it was the casinos that came in and just took everything off the shelves because it would have expired. But that kind of camaraderie of a, a family community coming together, and I'm sure every Indian country has their story, but for me, that's the uniqueness I saw out of this whole you know, it was it was just awesome to watch. It's not good to remember the bad memories, but it's good to take the positive on how you regrouped and came together as a whole. Yeah. I, I will share that, you know, I, you've talked a little bit about sovereignty and, you know, that ability for tribes to take back some of these some of the areas that in regards to like economies, economic development, your own hospitals. I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, why that is very different from what we see in the states and the counties, right? And in in the in that sense is that that response to COVID, I know that Gila River was one of the communities that many looked up to to see how the response to COVID was functioning from your through your area through your community and one example that comes up the most for me is how you guys utilized your own broadcasting corp to update everybody on covid updates i thought that was so cool because you guys have your own broadcasting corp right i think 
Yeah, your own ability. That's awesome. <laughs> your own ability to again take back and and use your own resources, like how quickly you're able to pivot and respond to COVID was, you know, we could talk about it now and see it, you know, all the things that you're sharing now and be like, wow, that was that was very cool. You know, in the moment you're not thinking about it, right? Because you're just responding and reacting. But I think that's the power of of you know, sovereignty and being able to utilize your own resources to respond to um, the community's needs. Yes, definitely. I didn't even think of the communication and our telecommunications. We have our own telecom to get virtual going and virtual for the children that we're going to have to be inside to learn for education. And, you know, just going down the list, the checklist, what could we've done better like you stated, we were on the ground running and didn't have time. We just had to start implementing as fast as we could and roll with the time, roll with what was mm-hmm. happening right before us. So I didn't even, yeah, our Hill River broadcasting, we constantly were doing messages and the governor was constantly updating. And it was just great to see that communication effort being pushed out there. I think that also the other cool thing too, I mean, I'm not from Gila River, you know, but I'm a member of another tribe and I was able to use some of the broadcasting information for myself. And then you guys even opened up a lot of, you know, testing and vaccines to members of other tribes. And then if you had the feasibility to do it, you would open it up to the public. So I also thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yes. And then now I'm going to kind of just shift over and okay. uh, just really talk about, um, you know, as a as an elected official and as a leader within your community, there's, I mean, you've just mentioned so many examples about the decision making and the role within your community that, you know, you're having to deal with as you navigate some of these healthcare, I don't even want to say issues, but healthcare needs, I guess, and and opportunities. I got to see you speak at NAMI this past weekend. Uh, learned a lot about, learned a lot about you, and learned a lot about your passion. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Okay, yeah, sure. I am a very strong advocate for mental health um, for many that suffer that are in, impacted by mental health, mental illness. And what I shared at NAMI was that I have a son that I want to say maybe it's been about ten years since two thousand five that came up with. Uh, um, what we call acute schizoaffective disorder. I never, I never would have known what that was. And I just shared a story about how at that time I didn't really have too much help and it was really emotional. I didn't know what I was up against and I didn't even know if he would make it. I didn't know if he would be alive today based on the fact of not, the, not knowing the unknowns. And whenever you have somebody or you caretake for someone that is in a predicament of mental illness. Sometimes all the services are not at your your doorstep, especially if you're, I have to say, if we're in our our nationality here, it seems like it kind of goes to this side. So I shared the story about not realizing what I was going to share, but just not knowing. I I used uh, my husband uh, at the time, you know, I just barely had, he was a I think I was uh, working for a, a um, one of the districts and he was our chief judge and just very, very nice. And I never knew, 
I just, you know, we happened to talk a lot and all of a sudden, you know, we started, he, we started seeing and we started dating and I, I didn't want to tell him that I had a son that had mental illness. So I took him to a restaurant and I wrote down a whole statement and I shared and it got emotional. I think now I can talk about it a little more, but I was waiting for his reaction to actually leave me because it's a hard thing when you have a son that's that way. Sometimes people just run from they don't want any part of that. They just want to cut and dry whatever relationship. But back at that time, he accepted. He didn't really. He didn't really have too much. Like he just said, "Oh well, you know what? I'm. I'm in the. I'm in the game with you." So this and to have somebody and he was a very smart jurist doctorate judge. You know, he was running our community. But I wanted to tell him. But before you became judge, myself and a couple of grassroots women. We went to our courts and we fought to get our our mental health grant because I felt there was a lot of mental health on our community and a lot of our tribal members. The stigma about mental health was just not, the outreach was not there. But working with our behavioral health, they had trained me to become a mental health first aid instructor. So I started training our districts that I just named, about seven districts, lay personnel. I think I trained over 200, including our law enforcement, about mental health first training, even our detention center. And when we get a mental health hold, what you do with them, you don't, you know, you have to treat, it's a different ballpark with that. So what the whole point and what I shared was that as long as the message I took was that if you have a good support system behind you, that would help. But in this case, it was like a knight in charming armor. Nobody ever gets that, a, a prince that comes. And, you know, anybody that knows my husband, his name is Victor Anton. Back then, he was hot. Uh, he was a very nice look. I never thought I would have somebody as hey. good looking as that. And I just, <laughs> and he was, uh, that was the, you know, he and it was, people still talk about that. But out of all that, he chose, you know, me with a son that had this deficiency and to this day, we call him our autumn Uber because he's the one that <laughs> takes us to the emergency room when we need to get in for a mental health assessment. He knows when I'm helping another family out, he'll be at home with the other kids. You know, I have six to two, a young one that's still with me. So he's the one that watches everything and he does the checks. He, he became his own person. And more importantly, as a judge, he really taught about Rule 11 to other tribal members. Rule 11 is a, a Rule 11 helps protect those with SMI or suffering from mental illness and get programs of getting forensic doctors because that's one thing Native Americans need to remember and other diversity that they kind of the minority population is not given legal representation when it comes to a mental health case coming through a court system and they're kind of just left in the corner. You know what, you do it on your own. But Rule 11 was adopted here. And on top of that, a lot of forensic doctors in the courts, they only want your money. But they're not there to do a good evaluation and treat. So they can get it across the finish line to a judge that somebody really in those courts has no, they're not, they're incompetent to stand trial. They don't need to be in the jails. They need to be in a hospital setting and get stabilized. So my passion for mental health has always been there as an advocate. And for NAMI, which is the national, again, 
what is it, National America, was it National Allegiance for Mental? It's it's a whole allegiance yeah. where they present support groups yeah. to Native community. They should, I, I was glad they came here. So that that's my story on mental health and what I do for mental health and the advocacy that I constantly will con- always take on. And now that we're up against the opiate crisis and fentanyl, after it's all said and done, I don't care what anybody says. When somebody's on an addictive drug such as fentanyl, sooner or later, the brainstem takes a long time to get well, if it even does that. That population now becomes an SMI case because they never, their brains are so fried with this brand new drug that's come out. And it's reality. It's here. And if you come through any city or town, you see the homeless population. It's it's not their fault, but it's this addiction that has made it the way that things are going now. That has to be at the forefront. That's the abuse in the system. Yeah. Ugh. Thank you for sharing that. You're I welcome. have, I think, one last question for you surrounding mental health and healthcare. Do you have any advice for non-tribal providers or any of those that serve your community or any indigenous community in the healthcare and mental health space? Do you have, what advice do you have as they approach care? So the state of Arizona, I, I just based her name out. I was asked to get on to a virtual um, training Zoom as a tribal leader. And I like the way the state of Arizona is approaching it. They're bringing those providers into a series of giving a history of Native American about our trauma and our genocide and where we came from, what we've been through boarding school. And they give a whole overview of the history of why it's hard for us to adapt or trust a non-Native provider. And when I sat in and some of them were at NAMI and they go, we saw you on there and I would give them perspective. My, if you were to ask if I had 12 non-medal or providers in front of me, the first thing I would advise them is, first of all, learn where your region is and what tribe is near you and their culture identity. And I know that there's a, a big diverse world out there, but every every not just there nationality-wise, whether you're African-American or Hispanic, Everyone's going to have to adapt to a culture, but respect that culture and learn about it. Once you learn across that line, the providers should learn about to be sensitive with cultural identity. Because some, for example, some of our members don't like to be looked at in the eye because it's just they're just looked down. They're timid. They're it's not being shy. It's just the way their upbringing is. Every tribe is different. The way you approach them. So I tell providers you should get a cultural diversity to learn about the tribe. And if your providers need that, you need to get that networking so that people like ours, like us, the state that's holding those classes can tell you what you're getting into. Because a lot of our IHS facilities are referring to those outside providers. They have no clue what it what you can't tell an elder to undress and let them take a look at this and that if they're timid already. There's a lot of underlying trauma from boarding schools. So, you know, though there's a, it can just take off in another, you know, branch. But your, your question was point blank. What would you tell them? My advice to them is to learn about that tribe, learn about that local culture, learn about tribes in general, and some of the do's and don'ts of how to be protective, be uh, 
surround yourself with, with knowing and introduce yourself and let them know that you're there to help them and heal them, not to, you know, make them feel uncomfortable. And it's bonding, showing a form of bonding. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That's It's beautiful how many cultures there are um, within, of course, the tribal communities, but then also just in our nation. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And Lieutenant Governor, my favorite and last question of the day. <laughs> what is your favorite res slang and use it in a sentence? Oh, my gosh. These. <laughs> Well, I just told you I made up my own word earlier, and that's autumn uber, because that's the grandpas and the grandmas and, and all that. The slang, oh gosh, I don't know. I, you have I, any words or sayings or phrases that you um, use all the time in community? I'm trying to remember some too. Wow, I, I did, it's been so long that I don't know. Let's play res ball, because I'm a basketball player. I like res ball for sports, and that's I think that's the only one. Or, you know, ours we have different tribes have different slings on what they do. But no, I, I just you know I just I don't know. There's so many out there, but um, I know with the Killer River Indian community, I know that we've been pushing to stay Killer River strong, no matter what we go through. Stay Killer River strong, and always have that humor and humbleness about you. So, other than that, I just for me it's all about I just said it I just like my my phrase of autumn uber because that's what we all <laughs> are doing autumn uber and if you could think of your native use uber because uber's transportation it's going to get you one to a to z and <laughs> you just never know who your autumn uber is but go uh, find your autumn uber that's my <laughs> uh, for us it would be like uh use your Autumn Uber, but um, cruising in your res ride. Yes. In your res ride. <laughs> oh, cruising in your war pony. Yeah, we're your war pony. <laughs> and then for those of you that aren't familiar with a movie called Smoke Signals, watch it because there's this one section in the movie where these two ladies are driving their res ride or their war pony and they're riding. It only drives backwards in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that part? Yeah, yeah. And they teased my husband because his name's Victor. Let's go to Danny's. <laughs> Give me a Coke. <laughs> Give me a beer. We don't drink no more, remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. Give me a Coke. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. All right. Yes. Well, that's, that's all okay. we have. Oh, my gosh. All thank right. you so much for You're being welcome. Guest. You're welcome so much. Nice meeting you. And Thank you for this opportunity. You okay. made my, my afternoon go so well. Oh, Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Have a okay. good day. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Day. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Over and out. Over and out. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on another episode of Tribal Health Podcast. See you later. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For the show notes, resources, and more, please visit podcast.tribalhealth.com. If you want to learn more about how tribal health can be a solution to health disparities, please visit us at www.tribalhealth.com.